This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome once more to our programme. I hope your week has gone well and no untoward forces have interfered with your well-being. We are going through Numpka Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which is itself a commentary on the seven points of mind training, and we've reached that portion of the text that talks about taking adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment. As we explained last week, it is obvious that in our kind of existence, we come across good circumstances and bad, and mostly we try as hard as we can to meet up with the good while avoiding the bad. This also obviously does not work, because we all go through bad circumstances no matter how we try not to. In a worldly sense, if we don't believe in spirituality or any kind of afterlife, always chasing after the good and avoiding the bad in life makes sense, even though it can never be wholly successful. While we are here in this brief incarnation, it is undoubtedly on the surface nicer to experience pleasure than pain. But it doesn't make so much sense if we believe we can use this life to achieve higher realizations and higher states. Then we must accept and work with adverse circumstances as much as we enjoy conducive circumstances. In other words, our whole life, whether pleasurable or painful, becomes our workshop. In Buddhism, we believe that everything in our experience can be used to achieve enlightenment. There is not one situation that is useless for our purpose. As an illustration, we might remember the famous story of two travelling monks who find they have to cross a river to continue their journey. On the bank of the river is a woman who is too afraid or too weak to make it across on her own. So one of the monks kindly picks her up on his back and carries her across, putting her down on the other side. His companion is shocked, because a monk is forbidden to even touch a woman, never mind carry one on his back. The monks continue on their journey, but the companion frets and fumes about what has happened. Eventually, he cannot hold back any longer and says to the other, How could you carry that woman on your back? Don't you know that we are not allowed to even touch women? The other monk looked at him and said, I put the woman down on the bank of the river. Why are you still carrying her? We can probably think of many situations in life that appear to have little re spiritual relevance at all, but we would be mistaken. Whether a situation furthers us or not depends not on the situation itself, but on how we see into it and react. In the story of the two monks, one monk saw being in need, felt compassion and gave assistance. No doubt he kept his mind pure at the same time. His physical journey contributed to his spiritual journey. The other monk reacted correctly within the bounds of religious prescription, but lacking compassion, lost an opportunity and only made the physical journey. So those of us on the spiritual path have to learn how to use everything to our spiritual benefit, and this means training our mind to accept and use adverse circumstances as part of our transformation into enlightened beings. In previous programs, we have talked about practicing Tonglen, that is taking on all beings suffering and giving them all our happiness, as a way of nurturing bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings. We have to defeat the ego-grasping and cherishing mind, the one that is always concerned with me, 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 
If we want to be able to take adverse circumstances into the path, the mind that is always looking for my benefit and disregarding others is the mind that is always chasing my pleasure and avoiding pain. This doesn't work, and an excellent way to help overcome this egocentric mind is to nurture such great love and compassion for all other beings that we can accept their suffering and give them all our happiness. Now we've discussed this at some length in previous programs, but lately we arrived at the instruction to accompany our practice of Tonglen and development of Bodhicitta with the four practices. This refers to accumulating positive potential or merit, purifying negativity, propitiating harmful spirits or forces, and enlisting the help of Dharma protectors. The latter two entail making offerings of some sort. Last week, we had some discussion about harmful forces. Of course, other humans can cause us harm, and we discussed instances of that. But Buddhism also believes in beings that are neither human nor animal that can bring benefit or harm. Now, if you're interested in such things, the website perfumedskull.com has a good discussion in an article titled Demon Directories on Listing and Living with Tibetan Worldly Spirits. The website www.kandro.net also lists some of the non-human forces and spirits that as humans we may encounter in one form or another. For instance, it talks about eight types of impure consciousness, which are Kla or Devas, Ging, which are attendants, musicians and dancers, Sadak, which are like genies, titans or guardians of upper realms, and then four types of Maras or creators of obstacles, which are Klesha, which embodies passion, Yama, who is death, Skanda, who is war, and Rahula Ganapati, the godly son, who is adversity or obstacle. And also, Ten, or earth spirits, Nyen, or Rakshasa, which are elementals or demons, Mamo, which are ogres, and Lu, or Nagas. There are others, but the website also has a revealing quote, by the very venerable Kempo Kata, abbot of Kama Triyana Dharma Chakra in Woodstock, New York, that goes like this. There is not any event that under all circumstances is an obstacle. During your life, sometimes a test situation may arise because of your meditation. If you lack understanding and meditative insight, this test could become an obstacle. However, if you have enough insight and understanding, the test could heighten your realization to a great extent. As an outcome of meditative experience, whatever appearances may arise can be transformed through meditative insight into a realization of the nature of all things as insubstantial, uncompounded, and only existing interdependently. Then we do not reject the appearances of existing things, but nevertheless, None of these things hold the truth of independence or the truth of substantiality. They're just another play of illusion. If a person understands and relates in this way, whatever drama appears in meditation could be tremendously uplifting. On the other hand, when you are meditating, you may get drawn into whatever arises out of your habitual and emotional conditioning. The appearance may just be your psychological patterns, but for you it is a spirit. It is demonic, and it is real. You will probably be afraid and try to defend yourself. And that's not the strategy we adopt in the path of meditation, though. For instance, 
When Milarepa was in a particular cave and the so-called demons appeared roaring and thundering towards him, Milarepa said, Your appearance is most wondrous and your message is the message of my teacher. He worked with it in that way. The demon of your confusion does not cling to you. You cling to it. From that point of view, such an event becomes a kind of special treat and a technique that brings more enrichment than the ordinary process. What is really important is how a person is able to work with what happens. So strictly speaking, these neither are obstacles or are not obstacles. While not in meditation, we can also experience hostile or benevolent forces, and these are dealt with accordingly. Sometimes the Tibetan lamas will make offerings to calm down the nasty ones, as the mind training like the rays of the sun recommends. But sometimes more forceful means are necessary if offerings don't work all that well. So there are offering rituals and submission rituals. There's an interesting article called Snakes, Worms and Evil Spirits, a realistic look at traditional spirit healing by Raven Caldera on www.northernshamanism.org. Now, this is not a Buddhism website, but it has some interesting things to say about how a spirit healer works. Raven Caldera says, Let's take a theoretical trip back to our prehistoric spirit healer. While not all shamans were healers, many were, and most did at least some healing. The shaman or spirit worker was not the same thing as the early herbalist, although in many cultures the two were combined, and most shamans knew the basics of this art. Spirit healers went further than just dosing people with herbs for their medicinal effects. Although herbalism was the first line of defense, sometimes it just wasn't good enough. Imagine that you are this person on whom the health of your entire tribe depends. You are surrounded by a dangerous environment and strange maladies that can come from any direction. This person breaks his leg. You set it and he heals fine. The next one, with a similar injury, becomes ill, doesn't heal and dies. Your first problem, of course, is diagnosis. How do you tell what's going wrong? You can examine the physical body and ask about symptoms, as doctors have done for millennia. But as they've often found, sometimes you can't accurately figure out what's wrong in that way. Symptoms may mask entirely different problems, and the outside of the body can only offer so many clues. Today, a great deal of diagnostic aid is received from being able to see inside the body and its fluids. X-rays, MRIs, biopsies, and most importantly, microscopically analyzing the critters and chemical makeup of the body fluids. However, our ancient healer does not have these ways of seeing inside the opaque bag of skin, especially on that smaller level. Physical technology has not advanced that far, so you turn to another sort of technology, that of seeing and working with the astral realm. Now, to do this, of course, you have to have the knack, which is why, although many people could be herb wives and cunning men, not everyone could be a spirit worker. In one account by an American ethnobotanist who went to South America to learn herb law from the shamans, he re-injures his elbow, apparently a recurring problem since a major injury there in college, and goes to the shaman who is currently helping him for some aid. The shaman examines his arms closely, says that there is a hole in his spirit elbow 
that is weakening his physical elbow and that it requires patching. He does a ritual to do this and the arm is better for some years. To me, this made perfect sense. He was checking out the astral body and not the physical body and that's where he could see the problem. Fixing it, of course, was a bigger deal, requiring all sorts of ritual work. To do this work, you'll have to be able to see things on the astral plane, including the astral body of a human being. Sometimes you could look into them in this way and see that there's something wrong, but you not, might not be able to pick out exactly what it is. There's an odd energy around the stomach. Is it from an imbalance of humors or energies, or is it from evil spirits? In other words, is it because the body's carefully balanced chemicals are lacking something? Or is it from an outside invasion? To figure this out may mean seeing smaller than you can see while staring with your astral eyes at the astral body. It means taking yourself into a tiny world, and that requires trance work and altered states of some kind. Now for this, you need a whole other set of technology. Methods of going into trance that are reliable, work well for you, and don't cause too much damage to you. Then you'll need a way to know what you're looking at when you go, and a way to interpret what you're seeing. This is contained in the symbolic law that is passed down to you by the spirit worker who trained you. Now you may not know what the adrenaline glands are, but you have been trained to take a trance journey to the well of fire, and to figure out what it ought to look like, and if something is wrong. Each shamanic tradition has its own language for the parts of the body. Inuit Angakoks, for example, had to memorize a symbolic language that included every part of the anatomy, including each bone. So you use your trance methods, be they drumming or hallucinogens, or dancing or chanting or fasting, or ritual sex or whatever you've found works for you. Then you visit the astral stomach of the man lying before you, here, having transformed your consciousness into something that can see a situation on the microscopic level, you discover that things are wrong. It's overrun with some sort of destructive creature that seems intent on wreaking havoc in order to create more of itself. Evil spirits. You observe them, getting their astral smell down and return. However, your job has just begun. If it's a sort of evil spirit that you've seen and smelled before, and you know that it responds to a certain physical treatment, you administer this. However, if it's not something that has so easy a cure, what will you do? Your second line of defense is to kill the evil spirits, because after all, that's what causes disease. Before you, the reader, starts reacting to this seemingly ridiculous statement with knee-jerk scorn, hold on a moment longer and consider this. Everyone who has ever worked with any kind of psychic healing knows that it all starts with life force. Respected and enduring systems such as Reiki and Qigong are based on that knowledge that there is energy that runs through everything and that it has many different flavors and that it can be moved around and redirected in order to cause physical change. In other words, everything has some sort of soul and things that live have a soul that is made out of dynamic life force. Whether it's called chi, ki, huna, prana, mana, or by any other name, we all have it. The chi within us takes on our signatures, our flavor. If we lose a lot of it, we may get sick and weak. Our immune systems seem to be the first things affected. 
Without any of it, we sicken and die. Bacteria, whether we like it or not, are alive. So are viruses. It's a strange and alien sort of life, but it is life. They are not inanimate objects. They move, and they eat, and they excrete, and they reproduce, and they have souls. If you're a spirit worker with the right sight, you may not be able to see their physical matter, but you can see their chi. From this perspective, it is entirely true that the body has been invaded by evil, or at least destructive spirits. The fact that they happen to be carting tiny material bodies along with them is irrelevant to you. You can't see or touch that part of them, so it doesn't matter. Cancer, too, has chi. While it isn't so much an invader as a part of the human body that has mutinied and gone nuts, when the change occurs from healthy to malignant, their energy signature changes, and the souls of cancer cells look alien to the rest of the body. Their spirits become evil, and evil spreads. The perspective remains correct. When you learn about life force, especially as part of a tribal healing tradition, after you've learned what life energy is and how it can be moved around, you learn that if something can be entirely separated from their life energy, they will sicken and die. And you also learn how to do that. Taking all the life force out of a large complex animal such as a human or even a squirrel or a beetle is difficult. It would take a while and you'd have to be really good at it and they'd have to hold still for the several days that it might take. To rip the souls out of bacteria is somewhat easier, if only because they're so much smaller, and you are so much bigger. The size difference is a problem, though, because the idea is to kill these evil spirits, and therefore make their physical containers sick and perish, without harming the human battlefield that this war will happen on. Modern allopathic medicine has been justly criticized by modern alternative medicine for failing to work with the human body in its treatment, for forgetting the humanity of the patients, for using scorched ground techniques without simultaneously adding proper nourishment and healing methods to alleviate the damage done to the body in the process, and for trying to bypass or replace the human system rather than work with it. Modern alternative medicine has been criticized by modern allopathic medicine for being too vague in its diagnosis too impotent when faced with severe diseases and too Pollyannaish in its practices. This too is unfortunately true. Most modern American energy healing systems promote pushing positive energy at the suffering patient in the hopes that it will strengthen the body's natural defenses and help the body to overcome the problem itself. Now, this is certainly the least invasive method and the one sure to do the least harm which is probably great for something that can be taught to anyone with a credit card or a checkbook. It also works to heal a great many minor problems, no question there, and it works as a decent adjunct alongside of damaging allopathic medicine. However, it is of little use when the body is facing an invader too great to fend off, which happens more often than modern alternative healers would like to believe. The ancient spirit worker would have concurred with that statement of frequency, though. As any tribal spirit healer will tell you, learning to do their job not only required a special knack, it also required an enormous expenditure of years, absorption of knowledge, and frequency of practice, at least as much as the average medical degree. And this was not something that could be learned in a year or two in one's spare time. 
A person must learn not only all the plants and their medicinal natures, but how to speak to their plant spirits. How do you find out what a plant is good for and what its dosage ought to be? You can do it with trial and error, with all the resultant casualties, but or you can ask the spirit of the plant. A person must learn techniques of trance work and avoid all inherent difficulties. He or she must learn the body's anatomy, both by observation, that's embalming, and through the symbolic language of their tradition. The person may also have to learn how to communicate with evil spirits in order to work out some kind of truce with them. And if that didn't work, he or she had to learn to suck or pull or cut or claw or otherwise remove the destructive spirits, hopefully weakening their physical manifestation. The ability to precisely remove the life force of the evil spirits while not disturbing that of the already weakened human patient is a skill as tricky as that of the most delicate modern surgery, and sometimes it cannot be done with human hands, mind and consciousness. Sometimes the spirit healer needs to recruit other spirits, whether that of a plant, an animal or something entirely different, to be their eyes and ears and hands on a microscopic but all-pervasive level. Now this requires an entirely different set of knowledge, communicating and propitiating spirits and allowing them to use your body while still remaining in control of the situation, or at least of yourself. It's a huge body of training, and one that most people don't fully understand and either dismiss or oversimplify or misinterpret. If you don't understand how this spiritual technology works, or if you don't accept its underlying concepts, then it does seem like a bunch of primitive nonsense. And that is Raven Caldera. However, it must be emphasized that however apparently harmful forces are dealt with, it must be with compassion. In his book, The Words of My Perfect Teacher, Patra Rinpoche has this to say, Now surely, if anyone takes harmful spirits as something to be killed or beaten, it must be because his mind is under the power of attachment and hatred and knows nothing of great impartial compassion. When you think about it carefully, those malignant spirits are far more in need of compassion than any benefactors. They have become harmful spirits because of their evil karma. Reborn as pretas with horrible bodies, their pain and fear is unimaginable. They experience nothing but endless hunger, thirst and exhaustion. They perceive everything as threatening, and their minds are full of hate and aggression. Many go to hell as soon as they die. Who could deserve more pity? The patrons may be sick and suffering, but that will help them exhaust their evil karma not to create more. These evil spirits, on the other hand, are harming others with their evil intentions and will be hurled by those harmful actions to the depths of the lower realms. If the conqueror, that's the Buddha, skilled in means and full of compassion, taught the art of exorcising or intimidating these harmful spirits with violent methods, it was out of compassion for them, like a mother spanking a child who will not obey her. He also permitted the ritual of liberation to be practiced by those who have the power to interrupt the flow of evil deeds of beings and who only do harm and to transfer their consciousness to a pure realm. But as for pandering to benefactors, monks and others that we consider to be on our side and rejecting demons and wrongdoers as hateful enemies, protecting the one and attacking the other out of attachment and hatred, 
Where are such attitudes mentioned in the teachings of the conqueror? As long as we are driven by such feelings of attachment and hatred, it would be futile to try to expel or attack any harmful spirits. Their bodies are only mental, and they will not obey us. They will only do us harm in return. Indeed, even if our feelings for such gods and spirits are very positive, not to speak of desire and hate, we will never subdue them as long as we believe that they really exist. He also then uses the example of the great Master Miller Rapper to illustrate the point. He says, When Jetson Miller was living in Garuda Forest Cave in the Chong Valley, the king of obstacle makers, Vinayaka, produced a supernatural illusion. In his cave, Jetson Miller found five astaras with eyes as big as saucers. He prayed to his teacher and to his yidam, but the dear demons did not go away. He meditated on the visualization of his deity and recited wrathful mantras, but still they would not go. Finally, he thought, Mapa of Lodrak, and that was his teacher, showed me that everything in the universe is mind, and that the nature of mind is empty and radiant. To believe in these demons and obstacle makers as something external, and to want them to go away, has no meaning. Feeling powerful confidence in the view that knows spirits and demons to be simply one's own perceptions, he strode back into his cave. Terrified and rolling their eyes, the astaras disappeared. This is also what the ogress of the rock meant when she sang to him, This demon of your own tendencies arises from your mind. If you don't recognize the nature of your mind, I'm not going to leave just because you tell me to go. If you don't realize that your mind is void, there are many more demons beside myself. But if you recognize the nature of your mind, adverse circumstances will serve only to sustain you, and even I, ogress of the rock, will be at your bidding. And from this, what did Milarepa realize? Let his The Song of a Yogi's Joy give us some indication. Oh, happy are the myriad manifestations. The more ups and downs, the more joy I feel. Happy is the body with no sinful karma, retribution. Happy indeed are the countless confusions. The greater the fear, the greater the happiness I feel. Oh, happy is the death of sensations and passions. The greater the distress and passions, the more one can be blithe and gay. What happiness to feel no ailments or illness. What happiness to feel that joy and suffering are one. What happiness to play in bodily movement with a power aroused by yoga. To jump and run, to dance and leap, is more joyful still. What happiness to sing the victorious song. What happiness to chant and hum. More joyful still to talk and loudly sing. Happy is the mind, powerful and confident, steeped in the realm of totality. The most extreme happiness is the self-emanation of self-power. Happy are the myriad forms, the myriad revelations. As a welcoming gift to my faithful pupils, I sing of yogic happiness. And with yogic happiness, we must now end the program, for our time is up. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please dedicate any positive potential to gaining enlightenment for all beings. I hope you will be with us and joyful next time. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts.
This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.